0: On Christmas morning in 1952, knowing how much her husband loved trains, Mary Steventon handed William a very thin present, wrapped in bright red and green paper with a white bow in the middle. William wasn't one to guess what might be hidden under the gift wrapping. He rather enjoyed being surprised, even though the object he was holding felt very familiar. After tearing the paper away, William held in his hands a 10-inch, 78-rpm record set. On the cover was a vivid drawing, reminiscent of the Art Deco style, of a Pennsylvania Railroad T1 locomotive that appeared to be moving very rapidly past a nondescript block of city buildings. At the top, in bold black and red lettering, were the words, Authentic Railroad Sound Effects. On the right side of the cover were words that told the owner of the album, What sort of audio excitement awaited them? Actual, realistic, lifelike recordings. Whistles, bells, station and train calls, complete station-to-station runs on real railroads by name trains. William Stevenson's eyes widened with excitement. From the looks of it, it appeared that finally someone had released a record containing real train sounds. Opening the cover, Steventon read on the inside that the recordings contained on this record were the only official recordings of the railroads. Steventon's excitement couldn't be contained. The rest of the Christmas present exchange with his wife would have to wait. He walked over to his phonograph, took out the first record, and carefully placed it on the spindle. Luckily, the unit was automatic, so all that needed to be done was rotate the start knob, and RCA Victor did the rest. After the normal mechanical sounds of the phonograph had stopped, Steventon eagerly awaited what would come from the phonograph speaker as the tone arm dropped onto the record's lead-in groove. Only, Steventon's anticipated journey into auditory railroad bliss got slightly derailed. As the first few seconds of the record played out, Steventon thought he might be enjoying what he was hearing. Sort of. Well, no. Not exactly. Something was not right.
1: Train number
2: 28 for Broadway Limited. Fort Crestline, Pittsburgh, Altoona, Harrisburg, Philadelphia, Newark, and New York. Ooh
0: And as the record continued to play, that familiar feeling of disgust came back to him. Mary also heard the sounds coming from the phonograph and to her it sounded like a typical train, only it was pounding into her living room. But as she watched her husband taking it all in, it didn't take long for her to realize that William was perplexed. He was sitting in a chair, listening intently to the record But he was leaned over with his elbows on his knees his left hand rubbing his mouth and chin as if he were lost in thought every minute or so he'd look at the cover of the record with a confused look on his face well the truth of the matter steventon was disappointed he was convinced that the sounds he was hearing were not those of actual trains everything sounded staged after all He had spent an enormous amount of time next to hundreds of railroad tracks or in the cab of a steam engine with his father, so he considered himself pretty knowledgeable on what real trains sounded like or what they should sound like. Without offending his wife, Steventon politely told Mary he was certain what he was hearing were train effects, created in a recording studio made to sound like whoever made these records had stood trackside as a Pennsylvania steam engine pulling a passenger train raced by. In other words, the trains featured on this record were anything but authentic. They were staged. Fake. Even down to the barking of the exhaust from the steam engine on the record. To Steventon, it sounded like a guy moving a wire brush across the top of a metal garbage can. After listening to both sides of the record, Steventon stood up and walked into the kitchen. Taking a cup of coffee from his wife, he gave her a hug, thanking her for what really was a very thoughtful gift. He didn't want to hurt his wife's feelings and perhaps he wasn't doing a good job at hiding his disappointment. So he told Mary he enjoyed the studio-created train sounds very much, but what he really wanted were recordings of real trains in actual service not sound effects that would have been used in a radio program. Before Mary could say anything, Steventon told her it wasn't her fault. No such records were available. In fact, they just didn't exist. The authentic Railroad sound effects record set was the best there was. Steventon left his wife in the kitchen and walked back to the living room. He plopped back into his chair and started rubbing his mouth and chin again There was no other choice. If William Steventon wanted authentic recordings of real trains in real service, he'd have to make them himself. So that's exactly what he decided to do. Welcome to Living with Steam Extra, where between full episodes of the podcast, I'll share some railroad sound recordings from sources other than John Prophet. Because by the mid to late 1950s, John wasn't the only one standing next to a railroad track with a recording device of some kind waiting for a train to pass by. I'm Aaron Heverin. In this episode, we'll continue our story of William A. Steventon and the introduction of the Railroad Record Club. William Steventon knew he wasn't alone in his desire for recordings of very authentic railroad sounds, especially sounds of steam engines in regular service. And in case you're wondering, because I use this term a lot, regular service refers to a train being on a company timetable, be it a passenger or a freight train, and the motive power for pulling the train would be, without question, a steam engine, because at the time, there was no such thing as a diesel-electric engine. So, if you were to plan a trip on the New York Central to Albany, New York, when you arrived at the station to board your train, a steam engine would be up front, waiting anxiously to get the signal to start pounding the rails and get underway. There was only one problem when it came to seeing steam engines in regular service. It was, after all, 1953. Some railroads had already begun the total elimination of their steam engine roster in favor of the new diesel locomotives, They were cheaper to operate, and every bit as efficient as their steam counterparts. Or in some ways, they were more efficient. So if Steventon wanted to start making recordings of trains pulled by steam engines, he had to get going right away. But in order to capture the sounds of trains on the scale he wanted, Steventon knew he'd have to purchase a recording device of some kind that was slightly better or a lot better than what the average consumer could purchase. Luckily, he had done some research on the matter, and several options came to mind, even though in the early 1950s, by 2022 standards, the choices were very limited. The first option, maybe he could go in the direction of using a record cutter. The technology was tried and true, and had been in use by radio stations and production companies for years. And if he added all the right accessories, it was absolutely possible to make high-quality recordings with a record cutter. The other option was to purchase a Webster Chicago wire recorder, since he knew of several other rail fans who were making recordings using this format with great results. If he did use a wire recorder, Steventon knew that he could record up to 1 hour of material and in the process accumulate a very impressive library of railroad sounds. Let's face it, If anyone wanted to make home recordings, the wire recorder was the best option bar none. Now, almost right away, the wire recorder was dismissed because Stevenson had been hearing the scuttlebutt about wire recorders becoming obsolete. And if what he was seeing in the many electronics catalogs of the day was any indication, the continued price reductions of wire recorders were a sure sign that suppliers wanted to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Wire recorders by 1953 were a catch-22. Yes, they were capable of making great-sounding recordings, providing you used a microphone better than the one that came with the device, and you couldn't deny that the total length of a recording could be up to one hour in length as a major benefit. The problem was really the wire itself. It was so thin and fragile that it became the wire recorder's Achilles heel, Steventon didn't want the horror stories he had been hearing about the wire flying off its spool and becoming an unsalvageable bird's nest to become a reality for him. Come to think of it, a record cutter wouldn't work either since they only recorded roughly three and a half minutes per side of a 78 RPM record. The feeling of constantly having to keep watch over a blank record and only capturing the bare minimum of train activity in order for it to fit on one side of the blank made Stevenson think that using a record cutter would produce results no better than the authentic railroad sound effect record his wife got him for Christmas. In other words, his recording time was short, so he'd have to cram as much material as he could into three and a half minutes, and there was nothing authentic about that. The biggest issue was there was no way to stop, erase a bad recording, and start over again with a record cutter. If you messed up, The blank was tossed in the garbage, or flung into a field like a frisbee out of anger and frustration. A magnetic tape recorder was the obvious solution. A professional unit would provide all the features necessary to capture the best fidelity possible of a moving train. A 7-inch reel of tape could hold anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour depending on the speed you ran the deck, and a microphone used by those in the broadcasting industry could easily be connected to the deck. the whole thing seemed perfect. There was only one thing that wasn't perfect, the price. Again, this is 1953, and a top-of-the-line tape recorder at that time was close to $700. That's $7,800 by today's standards. Spending that kind of money on a want rather than a need was going to be a hard sell to Steventon's wife, seeing that making recordings of trains was only a hobby. Or was it? William Stevenson was fortunate because his career with the telephone company gave him more than just a fleeting education when it came to knowing about the newest electronic gadgets on the market. By 1950, many companies began selling magnetic tape recorders, some with more features than others. But this was all irrelevant to most people since the technology was new and the market for the home consumer really hadn't hit its stride yet. It wouldn't be until 1955 or later when the magnetic tape recorder would become a very desired accessory to a hi-fi system. Some small decks were being introduced, but these were intended to be used for taking dictation or sending audio messages between friends and family. These models were not intended to be used for top-notch audio recording. And Steventon had no time for gimmicks or toys. He wanted the absolute best. He wanted professional. He wanted what broadcasting engineers used in radio stations or recording studios. Most importantly, he wanted the unit to be portable and able to adapt to his needs. In Steventon's mind, only two manufacturers offered those features, Ampex and MagnaCord. MagnaCord was founded in 1946 by R.G. Tinkham, John Boyers, Robert Landon, and C.G. Barker four men who previously worked for the Armour Research Foundation of the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. This was the same organization that developed the Wire Recorder for the United States military during World War II. After the war, Armour licensed the Wire Recorder technology to Webster Chicago for the production of Wire Recorders for the home consumer. The MagnaCord PT6 first appeared around 1950 and underwent very few changes by the time Stevenson purchased his unit in 1953. MagnaCord, along with Ampex, was one of the first manufacturers of professional 15 inches per second high fidelity tape machines in the world. While not remembered as clearly as their rival, MagnaCord built a tremendous number of machines, and many of them have survived to this day. MagnaCord advertised the PT-6 as being portable and flexible. However, in order to have a complete recording and playback system, you needed to purchase the PT-6A, which was only the mechanics. If you wanted to record and playback sound, you needed the PT-6P, which was the amplifier mixer unit. Both would mount into a portable rack mount case. Now if this sounds really great, Let me point out that the PT-6A weighed 23 pounds, while the PT-6P weighed in at 29 and a half pounds. And don't forget, you needed a heavy car battery to run the thing. So, William Stevenson would soon find out that the words portable and flexible meant different things to different people.
2: Locomotive 2300, the coal-burning steam turbine, 4,500-horsepower electric locomotive of the Norfolk and Western, with 113 cars near Christiansburg, Virginia, February 2, 1955.
0: William Steventon was not a big guy. As he was assembling his newly purchased portable recording studio, one lift of the thing told him he'd certainly need help the first time he headed out to make a recording. He made his first recordings along the main line of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad at the Riverdale, Maryland passenger station. These recordings were heard in part one of our story on William Steventon, and as mentioned in that episode. The first train he recorded was number 523, the Marylander, powered by an EMD diesel locomotive. His second train was powered by a steam engine, but in his haste to hear the recording immediately after making it, he accidentally partially erased it.
1: When we made our first recording in 1953, we took the equipment to Riverdale, Maryland, and recorded a steamer thundering past the B&O station. When the train had passed, We couldn't wait to hear what we had recorded. We stopped the recorder, rewound the tape, and played it back. Nothing happened. The tape was silent. We waited, thinking that perhaps the steamer wasn't within hearing distance yet. But when it became evident that we should be hearing something, we investigated the problem. Well, in our enthusiasm to get out and get recording as quickly as possible, we had failed to become familiar with the equipment. Instead of pushing the playback key, we had pushed the record key and were erasing the sound we had just recorded.
0: Over the course of the next few years, Steventon made numerous railroad sound recordings both in and around Washington, D.C., and on trips to visit family in Illinois. Basically, he was staying relatively close to home and bringing his recording equipment into locations he was familiar with just to play it safe and develop a technique on the PT-6 that would always guarantee flawless recordings. But the more Steventon recorded from his regular haunts, he soon realized that steam engines as a primary source of motive power for passenger and freight trains were quickly disappearing. The reality of the situation was for every one steam engine he captured on tape, he'd record five or more diesel engines. Left with the nagging thought of time running out, Steventon knew that if he wanted to record and preserve everything he wanted, he'd have to leave his home base and devote a lot of time to traveling to other parts of the country. With the many ways the railroad industry was changing around him, Steventon remembered what his father Seth had told him back in 1935 when a young William wanted to go to work on the railroad and operate a steam engine just like his dad. No you will not work on the railroad. I'm sorry, son, but I will see to it that you never run a steam locomotive. While these may seem like crushing words to a young boy who basically grew up in the cab of his father's New York Central steam engine, his father went on to say, Listen, Billy, the era of railroading is over. I started working for the New York Central in 1900, and I hope to retire and get out by 1950. You may not realize it, but in my time, they abandoned many branch lines. And tracks all over the system are being tore up. They've completely removed freight trains that went into hundreds of different places. Didn't matter if it was a big city or a one-horse town. Mail, freight, we carried it all. If the company ain't making money, they don't want those trains running anymore. Trains are the lifeline for those places, and they're getting shut down. They're taking passenger trains off the timetable constantly. It's all gone, Billy. And the truth of the matter is, I'm no better off today than I was when I first hired out." When this conversation took place in 1935, at what he assumed was at the height of Class 1 railroad activity in the United States, William thought his father was nuts. What in God's name was he talking about? But in 1953, as he thought back to that conversation, Steventon knew his father had been right. The end may not have happened in 1935 as his father had thought, But by the mid-1950s, there were signs that the railroad industry was nothing like it used to be when Steventon's father worked for the railroad. And so, it was time for William Steventon to hit the road. In a 1958 Milwaukee Sentinel newspaper interview, Steventon said he had traveled to 15 states to record train sounds. It was quite an extensive output considering the difficulties recording in the field presented at the time. As I said earlier, a complete PT-6 tape recorder setup, depending on the exact model purchased, could weigh nearly 60 pounds alone. Add to this the burden of all the other equipment needed to make a good recording, and you could see just how difficult it was for Steventon to record anything, especially if he went out alone. Just dragging the equipment from his home to the car and from the car to someplace trackside would require the help of at least one other person. If a recording location was remote and off the beaten path, more than one other helper would be needed. Steventon commented about the difficulty of using his bulky equipment in the field. We had a
1: 12-volt auto battery for the primary power source, a 12-volt DC to 110-volt AC converter, The MagnaCord, plus a satchel of extra equipment, tapes, and assorted material. Two men could struggle with all this equipment, but it required three men to carry everything with any degree of ease and mobility. In addition, we normally carried a battery charger for use with keeping the battery up to par during the night. I usually left the charger in the car during the day, but it remained a very necessary piece of our total equipment. It's a wonder we were able to record anything, considering the burden it was to get all that stuff trackside. Fortunately, two railfan friends of mine were often on hand to help, William Bateman, who worked for the Interstate Commerce Commission, and Bob Crockett, who, like me, had a real fondness for streetcars. But while I made recordings of streetcars, Bob took pictures of them. Hundreds of pictures of them.
2: Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, through freight number 15, diesel unit number 156, and diesel electric passenger car number 9844 on train number 12 at Christopher, Illinois, February the 12th, 1955.
0: After several years of traveling and making hundreds of recordings, it was inevitable that William Stevenson would connect with rail fans in other parts of the country that had a similar fondness for authentic recordings of anything train related. Ever since the introduction of the portable wire recorder in 1948 and later the portable magnetic tape recorder, it was very easy to make a recording of something and then take the spool of wire or 3-inch spool of tape, stick it in an envelope or a small box and mail it to another railroad sound enthusiast. This method of trading recordings became big business in a non-monetary sort of way for railfans all over. Keep in mind that back in Steventon's time there was no such thing as uploading an mp3 to Dropbox and sharing it with other people. Nor was there any sort of social media to share your recordings with millions via the internet. If you wanted to share your recordings or hear what other folks had recorded, You needed to advertise your intentions in newspapers, magazines, or publications devoted to railfanning or model railroads. In the late 1940s and into the early 50s, the country wasn't as small as it would become after the introduction of interstate highways or, frankly, after the introduction of the Internet. It was often impossible for a railfan in Buffalo to hear what trains in, say, Colorado sounded like. Unless he personally made the trip and discovered those railroads for himself. Now, sure, there were rail fans that did just that, but not everybody had the money or the time to gallivant all over the country for just a hobby. And you may be saying to yourself that trading sound recordings of trains seems like a strange idea. In all honesty, back in the good old days of the railroad industry, rail fans traded photographs and films with each other. Sound recordings were simply part of the natural progression. There were professional photography studios publishing stock images of trains just to capitalize on the affection rail fans had for steam engines. These mass-produced pictures were often of poor quality. But a photograph taken in a location favored by a rail fan living in another part of the country made that image much more special. If the same rail fan developed the film and made a print in their own darkroom, well that made the traded picture even more special. The same was true for sound recordings. A dedicated rail fan would take the time to get a near perfect recording of a train in their neck of the woods. That person usually had the equipment to do so. And as we heard earlier, you know what happened if you left the recording of a train to a production studio. By 1957, William Steventon had accumulated hundreds, if not thousands, of recordings of trains and other industrial tidbits related to railroad and streetcar operations. More than likely, it's through articles and advertisements placed in trade magazines that Steventon would meet Al Shade and Elwin Purrington, two gentlemen known as powerhouses in the railroad sound recording industry. Now we'll learn more about Shade and Purrington in future episodes of Living with Steam Extra. But for now, it's worthy of note that this method of advertising railroad sound recordings made by guys who shared the same hobby as him, gave Steventon quite an epiphany. One of Purrington's 1957 ads had copy that read, I am using an Ampex 600 recorder from an ATR inverter in the car and make recordings wherever action is taking place. I have followed many engines where highway parallels track and made some super recordings in this manner. If anyone would be interested in a sample tape or more information on this authentic sound for a pike, or just enjoy listening to it, let me hear from them. If anyone will send me a blank reel of tape, I'll send a sample at no charge." Al Shade's ads were likewise very similar in their delivery. Well, here's another one of those tape recorder fiends
1: who, like Edie Purlington, makes recordings of those wonderful steam locomotives. I would like to swap tapes with fans in the United States, Canada, England, Australia, or anywhere there is steam available. Please write or send a 600-foot sample of what you have. I will send a sample of mine on a 600-foot reel. I have the following at present. Most types of locomotives now in service on the B&O including a few passenger diesels and some freight diesels. I have a nickel plate steam, mostly 284s and 282s, Canadian National one passenger train pulled by 462, number 5582, and one reel of New York Central, which was copied from an old wire recorder.
0: Steventon studied these ads and others like it and wondered if he could do one better. Rather than placing a simple letter in the want ads of a publication, What if he could create a catalogue of recordings? A very extensive catalogue that separated his recordings into categories like railroad name, the type of engine, the location, etc. What if he could create this catalogue and advertise it in those same newspapers and magazines? A reader could check off what he wanted to order from the catalogue, or he could send for a copy of the catalogue to order at a later time. What if he could mass produce his recordings from a single master so there would be no degradation in sound quality? What if he could include recordings made by other rail fans in this catalog? Steventon's mind was racing. Could he really pull this off? And if so, how? And what would he call this venture? None of that mattered at the moment. If his idea was going to work, Steventon needed to create that catalog of recordings, and for that, he needed to get his inventory meticulously organized. Luckily, he kept incredibly detailed notes for every recording he made. He just needed to arrange them all in a way that made sense to everyone, but above all, easy for him to locate amongst his hundreds of tapes. There was just one little problem that made Steventon apply the brakes and curb his enthusiasm for the project just a tad. His day job, the one that paid the bills. Over the course of several years, Steventon had been working as a telephone loans examiner for the Rural Electrification Agency of the federal government, a job that took him from Maryland to Illinois and then finally Wisconsin. Hawkins, Wisconsin to be more precise. And it's there that he finally put down roots and raised a family. While he was in Hawkins, his career took a slightly different path when he purchased the Cream Valley Telephone Company and set about securing an REA loan from, well, basically from himself in a roundabout sort of way. Remember, Stevenson was a telephone loans examiner, and in this position, he went about securing the funding for telephone companies to run cables in rural areas of the United States. The purpose of the loan was to upgrade the telephone service Cream Valley provided to its customers. Even in the mid-1950s, there were still small towns and other communities in the U.S. that did not have modern telephone service. With the Cream Valley Telephone Company, Steventon wanted to bring dial tone dialing to the towns of Hawkins, Glenflora, and Kennan, Wisconsin. And thanks to Steventon, the local residents no longer had to be on a telephone party line or have to call the local operator and have her connect a call to the party you wanted to speak with. This venture turned out to be very successful for Steventon. So in 1963, he sold the company and was able to semi-retire. In other words, Steventon was now in a financially secure moment in his life and he felt there was nothing stopping him from launching his Railroad Sounds catalog project. And so, with his eyes on the prize, William Stevenson got to work creating what he would soon call the Railroad Record Club.
2: Illinois Central Railroad, locomotive 2506, near Wycliffe, Kentucky immediately followed by locomotive 1568, December the 10th, 1953. 2506, running south of Wycliffe. Shops at Paducah, Kentucky, December the 10th, 1953. Hostlers are moving locomotives to service tracks. A switch engine is doing yard work, and the shop whistle blows for the noon lunch hour. Locomotive number 110 of the 30-mile Smoky Mountain Railroad, operating between Sevierville and Knoxville, Tennessee, May the 28th, 1954. New York City's Third Avenue Elevated, recorded from the inside of a car on December the 31st, 1954.
0: You've been listening to Living with Steam Extra. This has been the second part in a series on the life of William A. Steventon and the Railroad Record Club. The next installment will be available after we hear more of John Prophet's recordings in the next full episode of Living with Steam. The majority of the historical information for this episode, including all of Steventon's recordings, was provided by Kenneth Gear. Who had the incredible good fortune of finding and preserving the entire Steventon estate along with his Railroad Record Club archives. Without Ken's help and dedication to the preservation of his output, Steventon certainly would have been a forgotten footnote among other well-known railroad historians who made it their life's mission to capture and preserve the history of the railroad industry. This episode featured the voice talents of Mark Swartz, Tom Barich, Mike McKay and Garrett Adams. All of the train sounds heard in this episode were recorded by William Steventon. Living with Steam is written and produced by me, Aaron Hevron. For additional content, such as photographs, videos, maps, and other information related to each episode, please visit the Living with Steam website at livingwithsteam.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can leave a comment on the website or simply drop an email to livingwithsteam at gmail.com. You can also visit facebook.com forward slash podcast to leave a comment or just say hi. Living with Steam is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. While you're on any of those platforms, please consider rating the show. I'd certainly appreciate the feedback. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
2: who worked on the railroad I know you've got a question you're going to say your dad took you on that locomotive he was breaking the rules that's right he was and I've often wondered it didn't mean anything to me at the time I mean I was just there saying I went to the store and play self and it wasn't until just about five or six years ago it suddenly dawned on me what he was doing Now, the officials knew that this was happening. The people that worked there, they knew that I was riding the locomotive. Nobody said a word. And it's just a few years ago, it suddenly dawned on me. When I was a youngster, I was sick almost all the time, and they didn't expect me to live. And I know what happened. My dad was trying to please a little boy. He didn't think would be around too long. But I, 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 know, I know that now. And one, one point other, too. Railroaders are, you know this, they're, they're a group. They stick together. I told you my mother died in 1936. The day that she died, my father was on a north end run. He was up at Danville, Illinois. And the people who were staying with my mother, were at home. They called the railroad and they told the railroad people there at mount carmel they said that that my mother was dying and uh, uh dad told me later he said it was the easiest run i ever made he said the passenger trains were in the siding the freight trains were in the siding. He said, I just had a clear run. He said, all I did was stop for coal and water. He said, I, I didn't know what was happening. When he pulled into the terminal, the railroad had a car there. He got in the car. He went home. My mother died at 1025 that night. But the railroad saw it that he got home before she died. So I know, I know why. It didn't say anything when I was on the locomotion. I know that now.
0: But it took me many, many years to find that out.